such a joy to gather with you week after week to sing God's praise, to hear God's word. Amen? When Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. When Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. Are the famous words of Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the early 20th century German Lutheran pastor and theologian, and Nazi dissenter. Uh, He was hanged for an assassination attempt of Adolf Hitler in 1945. In his well-known modern classic, The Cost of Discipleship, Bonhoeffer calls Christians to count the cost of following Jesus and not to cheapen grace, as he saw Christianity becoming more and more secularized, accommodating the demands of obedience to Jesus to the requirements of society. Basically, what Bonhoeffer saw as a watered-down version of discipleship all around Christianity, cheap grace as opposed to costly grace. However, although much of Bonhoeffer's radical call to discipleship is commendable and inspiring in many ways, it may incite an incomplete picture of what biblical discipleship is. David Mathis of Desiring God Ministries writes, No disrespect to Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Christians are called to more than mere discipleship. Mathis continues, Make no mistake about it, following Jesus does involve self-denying, taking up the cross, and walking in the steps of our Lord with all the believing, praying, giving, loving, and serving that it involves. But Jesus himself calls us to more than just following him. Better put, his call to discipleship includes the call to disciple-making. Close quote. In other words, Jesus' call to discipleship isn't just Matthew 16, 24 and 25, which says, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. But it is also Matthew 28, 19 through 20. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. It's suffering, not for suffering's sake, but it's suffering with purpose. Amen? And this is the reason for which Paul exhorts Timothy to share in suffering for the gospel in order that the gospel can pass on to the next generation. We're continuing our study through 2 Timothy in our series titled Faithful to the End. And my prayer, as I've been sharing, as we examine this soul-searching epistle, is that we would embrace Paul's call to suffer for the gospel of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. In this letter, the Apostle Paul is writing to his young protege, Timothy, from a dark and damp Roman prison cell just before he is beheaded in AD 67. We know that the Roman Emperor Nero was on a rampage of persecuting Christians, scapegoating Christians, particularly Paul, as the reason for the great fire of Rome in A.D. 64 that burned half of the city. Well, as a result, Paul says he was bound up as a criminal, and partners of the gospel and friends in ministry of Paul turned away from him, ashamed of Paul's chains. But Paul exhorts Timothy, doesn't he? Do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in the suffering for the gospel by the power of God. In today's passage, 
And having exhorted Timothy why we should not be ashamed for the gospel because of the power of the gift and the gospel and the guarantee at work in him, in 2 Timothy chapter 1, verses 6 through 12, and how Timothy can suffer for the gospel in the face of fear and suffering by following the pattern of sound doctrine and by following the example of sacrificial faith from 2 Timothy chapter 1, verses 13 through 18, Paul now exhorts Timothy for what purpose he should suffer for the gospel. For what purpose Timothy should suffer for the gospel. So from 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1 through 7, I want to share with you three reasons Christians should be unashamed of the gospel in the face of fear and suffering. Three reasons Christians should be unashamed of the gospel in the face of fear and suffering. Here's the outline so you can follow. Point number one, the source for our suffering. Verses one and seven. The source for our suffering. Verse one and seven. Point number two, the goal of our suffering. Verse two, the goal of our suffering. And point number three, the requirement in our suffering. Verses three to six. The source for our suffering, one and seven. The goal of our suffering from verse two. And the requirement in our suffering from verses three through six. Brothers and sisters, I pray this word will remind us and encourage us afresh to persevere in the great commission task Jesus commanded us to make disciples of all nations. I pray this message will revive a new a focus, a desire for holistic, costly discipleship. Guests and visitors, welcome. Thank you so much for joining us today. If you do not consider yourself a Christian, we especially welcome you. As Jacob said, we have been praying for you. We believe in the one true living God who is sovereign and in control of all things. And so we know that you are not here by coincidence or by accident or by mistakes or by random chance. But we know and believe that God led you here in order that you may hear God's word and come to know and believe his grace, his mercy, and peace. So will you determine today, if you're not a Christian, to listen carefully to the words I share from the Bible? We believe the words of the Bible are inspired and inerrant, and the revealed words of God who desires to make himself and his will known to men and women. So please listen with careful ears. His word shows us we are sinners in need of a Savior, and his word shows us that the Savior is Jesus Christ, who came, who lived, who died and rose again in order that you and I can be forgiven of our sins and have new and eternal life if we would repent and trust in him. So without further ado, let's turn to his word found on page 995 of the Blue Bibles around you. And as you look there, as you turn there, please keep your Bibles open for the entire duration as I preach and read. And please do reference it often so that you know that this is God's word for you to grow you in knowledge, faith, and love in him. May the Lord grant us ears to hear and eyes to see his truth. Second Timothy chapter 2. Verses 1 through 7 says this. You then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. An athlete is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. 
It is the hard-working farmer who ought to have the first share of the crops. Think over what I say, for the Lord will give you understanding in everything. So again, for what purpose should Christians be unashamed of the gospel in the face of fear and suffering? Point number one, the source for our suffering from verses one and seven. Look with me to verse one again. It says this, you then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. The first observation we can make from this passage is the phrase, you then, or in another translation, you therefore. And anytime the word therefore is present, we have to ask the question, why is the word therefore, therefore? Well, in the previous verses in chapter 1, verses 15 through 18, Paul had given negative examples of how not to suffer for the gospel in naming Philegius and Hermogenes, who were deserters of the gospel and of Paul when the going got tough. Don't be like Philegius and Hermogenes. In contrast, Paul had also given a positive example of Onesiphorus, who was a refresher to Paul, even at great cost, as someone who was commended in suffering for the gospel. And so Paul, in a direct appeal to Timothy, grammatically emphatic in position and in meaning, exhorts him, you, Timothy, therefore my child or my son, which marks a new section and instruction to Timothy, highlights a particular gravity or weightiness to what Paul is about to say. Now, just to give you a bit of my interpretive process in the exegesis of this passage, which is one of the reasons I shared with you at the beginning of this series, uh, the reason for studying shorter passages through 2 Timothy was so that we can all grow together as a church as better expository listeners of the Bible. Well, as I wrestle through this passage by seeing how there are three imperatives in verse 1, be strengthened or be strong. In verse 2, entrust to faithful men. And in verse 3, and share in suffering. And then you see the three metaphors, right? Of a soldier, of an athlete, and the farmer. So initially, we, you and I both are thinking perhaps, ah, nice, a two-point sermon. Point number one, imperatives. Point number two, examples. But upon careful examination of this pericope, there is actually four imperatives, which kind of throws you off. In verse 7, Paul says, think over what I say. It feels almost like a tack on. So what do you do with it? What do you do with verse 7? So all of a sudden, the passage becomes not as pretty or easy to outline. Is it a three-point sermon or a four-point sermon for each of the imperatives? Point number one, be strong in the gospel. Point number two, entrust the gospel. Point number three, share in the suffering for the gospel. And point number four, think over the gospel. Not as pretty, not as easy. Well, mull over that passage long enough. And what you'll see is that verse 1 and verse 7 provides the bookends, which helps explain the thrust of Paul's argument or the frame of Paul's exhortation. Timothy should not be afraid to share in suffering for the gospel because as according to verse 1 and verse 7, it is the Lord, it is God himself who will provide all the means for which Timothy was to suffer. As Paul says it in another letter in Philippians 4.19, and my God will supply all your needs according to his glorious riches in Christ Jesus. Hence point number one, the source for our suffering. And as one commentator says, this section anticipates the question, how can one fulfill faithfully the mission being passed on to Timothy? Again, by the source 
that God himself provides for the task ahead. Paul says, you then, my child, be strengthened. It's important that in the face of fear and shame, Timothy finds strength. Remember, he was ashamed. Remember, he was fearful. So Paul bids him to be strong. Somebody say strong. Thank you. This verb occurs seven times in the New Testament, and it's closely associated with Paul. Four times it refers to the strength that Paul received from God. Once, Paul uses the word to describe how God strengthened Abraham, for example, in Romans 4.20. And again, Paul uses the same word, be strong, to exhort the Ephesians to be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power in Ephesians 6.10. Paul confidently believed that God who possesses all power is also readily willing to dispose of his power to his faithful servants. As one commentator says, Paul does not voice a random hope, but invokes a tested and true divine resource that can surely stabilize and put backbone into Timothy. As 2 Corinthians 3.12 says, Since then we have such hope, we act with great boldness. Amen? Since then, we have such confident hope, we act with great boldness. Hence, we notice the strengthening is in the present passive voice, be strengthened. It should be translated rightly, be continually strengthened. The strength Timothy needs is not something he can conjure up by himself. It is something that must be given to him from the outside and something Timothy and we also must be empowered by daily. And the agent of the strengthening, of course, again, as I said, is God himself. You then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. In the face of alternative options available to Timothy, to follow, to desert Paul, or to hold fast to the gospel, or to abandon the gospel, Timothy is exhorted to seek continually the power that God makes available so that he can fulfill the ministry. Furthermore, look at verse 7. It says, think over what I say, for the Lord will give you understanding in everything. Fear has a way of paralyzing us from the task at hand, doesn't it? Fear of failure is often the reason for our procrastination or laziness or avoidance or a lack of initiation or engagement, isn't it? It is not that Paul's disciple and pastor of the church of Ephesus, Timothy, was ignorant or unaware of the ministry that he has been called to. Timothy has been serving with Paul for well over 15 years. Yet we all, like Timothy, need to be refreshed daily, weekly, regularly, often to be reminded that the strength that we need for the ministry ahead is not from ourselves, but from God himself. We need to be exhorted and encouraged to keep going and to not grow weary in doing good, don't we? To remain steadfast and long-suffering through trials. Amen? Last night, I tagged along with my wife's work dinner and a pastor friend of ours, Isaac Adams, who put the dinner together. He began his ministry as a senior pastor of the church that we prayed for this afternoon about two years ago, was sharing with us the difficulties that he's been going through starting with his mother's death just around the time that he was called as the pastor of that church. It was interesting A similar thing happened to me right before starting NCBC four years ago with my father's death. And we encouraged one another how it's through suffering, how God sovereignly orchestrates the situations in our lives to endear ourselves to him and to the people of our congregation so that we can more depend on him 
and on others and on less of ourselves. Amen? Paul says in 2 Corinthians 3, verses 5 through 6, it is not that we are competent in ourselves to claim anything as coming from ourselves, but our competency, our adequacy is from God. He made us competent to be ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. Paul knew because he was confident of Timothy's sincere faith. And the power of God available to and present in Timothy in his pastoral calling, in the gospel, in the confidence of God's persevering promise, if Timothy would simply consider again and think over what Paul was saying, that God would indeed give Timothy understanding, a renewed mind, and motivation to serve and to suffer for the gospel in and for everything Timothy needed for the task of fulfilling the mission ahead. Paul was calling Timothy as he wrote Romans 12 too, in the same vein. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Now, we've covered the source of our strength is in God, but Paul also says the means of the strengthening is, the next phrase, the grace that is in Christ Jesus. In other words, that strengthening power for ministry can only be found in Christ alone. The phrase, by the grace, is the means or the instrument by which God empowers Timothy both to desire and to do God's pleasure. A commentator notes, this is perhaps the only time in Paul's writing that the article, the grace, is used in the New Testament. And Paul means to specify that it is only the grace in Christ Jesus that empowers. Well, how are Christians empowered by the grace that is in Christ Jesus? Because when you just think about grace, it doesn't sound exactly that strong. Grace doesn't exactly sound like power. Well, the Bible actually says a lot about grace. So let me share with you a few verses. Titus 2, 11 through 12 says this. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. Grace has brought salvation for all people and is what we need to live as Christians. Ephesians 4, 7 says, But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Grace is the immeasurable gift given to us, to believers in Christ. Hebrews 13, 9 says, Do not be led away by diverse and strange teachings, for it is good of the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by foods which have not benefited those who devoted to them. Grace is the strength we need as Christians more than even food. 2 Corinthians 12, 8-9 says this, Three times I pleaded with the Lord that it should leave me, but he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Grace is sufficient for us in our weaknesses. And Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 through 9. For by grace you have been saved. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. Grace is the means by which you and I are saved through faith. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 16. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Grace is the confidence 
that draws us near to God and help in time of need. That is grace. But most pointedly, 2 Timothy chapter 1, verses 9 and 10, he has saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began, and which now has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. Brothers and sisters, grace is the gift and the power of the gospel, the good news of Jesus for sinners, that by his sinless life, that by his substitute death on the cross and by his resurrection, we have been forgiven of our sins, we have been redeemed from our cursed state and made righteous in him to be one with God, to be called the children of God, to be called the church of Jesus Christ. This is why John 1.16 says, For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. Brothers and sisters, we just sang about it. Marvelous, infinite, matchless grace, freely bestowed on all who believe. Grace, grace, God's grace, grace that will pardon and cleanse within. Grace, grace, God's grace, grace that is greater than all our sin. Amen? Guests and visitors, if you are here and you do not consider yourself a believer and a follower of Christ, or you are not sure that you are, I want to encourage you to receive the grace of our loving Lord through Jesus Christ today. All you have to do is repent of your sins. That means to turn from trusting in the things of this world. Believe that Jesus Christ died and rose again for you. And trust in him this moment, from this day forth, in every situation, in every circumstance. Trust in him and in him alone. He alone can save you. He alone has come, and he alone is coming again. If you want to learn more about how to be a Christian, the pastors of this church would love to talk to you after service, by the doors, at the close of service, or you can talk to someone smiling next to you. They would love to share with you how amazing it is to know and experience daily the grace of our Jesus Christ, our Lord. Brothers and sisters, when times of suffering and sorrows and fears and weaknesses come, I want to ask you, How are you relying on the source of our suffering? The grace that is in Christ Jesus for your strengthening, the understanding, the wisdom, the insight, the reminder, the knowledge, the confidence, the renewal that is available in Jesus Christ, our Lord, for everything. How are you relying on him? Before you turn to someone for advice, do you labor in prayer and in the word for counsel? Instead of stressing in anxiety, rather than dwelling in depression or lingering in sin and defeat, lost in despair or paralyzed by fear, do you look to him, to Christ, in trust? Do you receive his grace daily? Are you strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus? Again, the present passive imperative tense of be continually strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus is an important reminder, not only for timid Timothy, it is a necessary word for you and me, for us, isn't it? Particularly, as you'll notice, the following two imperative verbs in the passage, entrust and share, are in the aorist tense. Verses 1 and 7 suggest that responding to these commands to fulfill the ministry first need to come by being continually strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. That is the key to fulfilling and following the commands of Christ, the purpose of Christ. That's point number one. Point number two, 
For what purpose should Christians be unashamed of the gospel in the face of fear and suffering? Point number two, the goal of our suffering from verse two. This point is a simple and shorter point, but I believe it's the central point of this passage and perhaps of the whole letter. The purpose of Paul's suffering and the reason why Timothy should suffer for the gospel is for this very task. So look at verse 2. And what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Paul says, the pattern of sound doctrine you heard from me, the good deposit entrusted to you, the gospel you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will also be able to teach others also. Brothers and sisters, this verse is really the heart and soul of the Christian ministry and the entire purpose, dare I say, of our existence on earth. The expansion of Christ's kingdom through the propagation of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Of course, the purpose of our salvation is for the worship of God today and for all eternity. To follow Jesus, our Savior and Lord, in life and death and to eternity But here on earth, while you and I still have breath, what is our purpose? What is our calling? What is our mission? What is our great commission? To preach the gospel in order to make disciples who make disciples. The purpose of our Christian lives isn't to be happy, healthy, and wealthy. The purpose of our Christian lives isn't simply to know that we are forgiven of our sins so we can live However we want, happily ever after. That is not the purpose of the Christian life at all. The purpose of the Christian life isn't to be free from suffering. No, it's the opposite. James chapter 1, 2, and 4 says this, Count it all joy when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. It is the joy we know, brothers and sisters, in our suffering to know that our sovereign God has a purpose for us, to share the good news of the gospel, to true lasting hope in Jesus Christ alone. That is our purpose. That is the intention of suffering. Notice also the specificity of Paul's charge to Timothy. Timothy's duty to pass on the gospel has four generations in view. First generation is Paul from me. Second generation is to Timothy, what you have heard. Third generation is Timothy's disciples, in trust to faithful men. And fourth generation, Timothy's disciples, disciples, who will be able to teach others also. The whole purpose in which Timothy should fan the flame of the gift of God and not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord, nor of Paul, is because the gospel must pass on. Timothy must empower Love and self-control with boldness and confidence and perseverance make disciples who in turn also make disciples. Paul instructs Timothy, just as he himself was entrusted with the gospel in 2 Timothy 1.12, and just as Timothy himself was entrusted with the gospel in 2 Timothy 1.14, Timothy now was to entrust that same gospel to faithful men. Now, the question was asked at our community group, Who are these faithful men? I believe what the scripture teaches us is that these men are whom Paul wrote in 1 Timothy chapter 3 as qualified men who are able to teach sound doctrine to others. Men who aspire to the office of the overseer who desires this noble task. Men who are above reproach, husbands of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, 
respectable, hospitable, able to teach. Not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money, a man who manages his own household well, with all dignity, keeping his children submissive, a man who is not a recent convert, a man who is well thought of by outsiders. The task of Timothy was for the purpose of multiplication, of raising up fellow pastors and teachers and disciple makers who will in turn also make disciples in order that the gospel can be passed on from one generation to the next. So beloved New Covenant Baptist Church, brothers and sisters, in our day, even among Christian churches, even among broad evangelicalism, Christians who say they believe in the Bible are divided regarding the mission, the purpose of the church. Well, I think this verse clarifies for us the primary mission of the church is making disciples. It's not simply sharing the gospel. It's sharing the gospel for the purpose of making disciples. The purpose of the church, the mission of the church, is not simply social justice. It's not simply humanitarian aid. It's not simply political dominance at all. It's not reclaiming society for Christ Some of those things are good things. Some of those are good intentions. Christians should be about doing good to society. But the supreme mission of the church is to make disciples who will pass on the gospel in order that more and more sinners can come to call on Jesus as Savior and Lord. Amen? Hear Paul carefully, brothers and sisters. The mission of the church is not simply to make converts to fill these seats. So we can have a healthy budget and have a nice Christian community within. Our mission is to raise up preachers and disciple makers who will advance the gospel through disciple makers. Although our church, we all know, is relatively young, four years in, I pray that by God's help and grace, many gospel workers will be raised up from within our congregation. Amen? That brothers will be challenged and persevere in aspiring to the qualifications of an elder, that many, many brothers will be challenged and persevere in this holy, noble task. That brothers will be trained to be able to teach and lead and disciple. That men and women of this congregation will be sound in theology. That they will be able to teach others faithfully. That they are able to disciple faithfully, who are in turn able to teach others also. So again, How are you doing in your discipling? I cannot get away from this thing that I keep bringing up before you. How are you doing in your discipling? Okay, I get it. We all get it. We have busy lives. It's a busy season. But are you thinking through your priorities? As a follower of Jesus, is becoming a disciple who can make disciples your highest priority or not? So many churches and Christians struggle in this foremost task, don't they? Many of us can honestly say, even growing up in church, we never ourselves have been discipled, so we don't know how to disciple. But, as we often say at NCBC, discipling is the bread and butter, the steak and potatoes, the rice and chicken of our church, right? It's really simple. It's helping others follow Jesus as you help yourself follow Jesus. Discipleship can look different in many ways, but it always involves, first and foremost, a priority on the word. So start by growing as an expository listener of the word. Prepare your hearts and minds in advance by reading through the passage that will be preached on that upcoming Sunday. Study the passage before service. Work through the Simeon Trust Workshop worksheet that we sent out through the newsletter. After church, talk to others about what encouraged you and blessed you and convicted you from the sermon 
and make this a regular habit. Attend community groups where we focus on the word through sermon review and preview. Sunday seminars are finally picking back up sometime in March where you can grow in knowledge regarding various topics in theology. You can also meet with fellow brothers and sisters of this church throughout the week for discipling, to read the Bible together if you struggle in that, to memorize scripture together, to pray together, to read good and hard books together, to grow in your knowledge and love for God, to confess your sins to one another, to pray for one another, to encourage one another. Don't just meet up to catch about how life is going. Of course, that's good. But let the word of God be central. Simeon Trust Workshop for Sisters is coming up. So are you signed up or not? Will you attend consistently? Don't just sign up and then miss like half of it. Be committed to it. Amen? I know there are so many faithful disciplers and disciple makers in this congregation. I'm so thankful for you all. Please keep going. For busy parents with young kids, thank you so much for your perseverance in discipling your children through your family worship. Continue to read the Bible to your children, answering the most obscure questions about life and God from your kids, even in the most long and hard days, even as you just want your kids to go to sleep. Thank you for persevering in discipling your children. I just want to say, keep going, keep laboring, keep suffering for the gospel. Church, let's continue to pray for more men to be raised up as elders. This is why it's such a joy, even though Jeremy Leong is leaving us and he'll be dearly missed, to see Jeremy sent out as a pastor. What a joy to see that for our young church. Pray for upcoming ecclesiology reading group, where I think currently around 25 brothers are signed up. So excited about that. Pray for the upcoming missions reading group, where I know at least almost 15. 10. 10 are signed up. Pray for brothers teaching Sunday seminars when we pick that back up. Pray for community group leaders. Pray for brothers who will teach the prayer meeting devotionals so that they would grow as sound and effective teachers of the gospel. Pray for sisters who will be able to faithfully and effectively teach and disciple other sisters. Amen? That's point number two. Point number three. For what purpose should Christians be unashamed of the gospel in the face of fear and suffering? Third and finally, the requirement in our suffering from verses three through six. In verse three, Paul exhorts Timothy in his third imperative to share in suffering. As Christ himself has suffered for the gospel, as Paul himself has suffered for the gospel, Timothy was also to share in suffering for the gospel. Again, Paul meant to convey, you are not alone, Timothy. We are in this together. Remember the heritage of your faith, Timothy. We are here for you, praying for you, that you would carry on the task that God has entrusted you in. But Paul elaborates the sharing and the suffering with three metaphors to clarify what sharing and the suffering means through the illustrations of a good soldier, an athlete, and a hard-working farmer. So it goes something like this. Paul, again, is teaching Timothy. It is not simply the call to suffer, but it is to suffer for the gospel, but even more so to suffer in a way that will produce fruit. Of course, Paul has written, it is only God who will give fruit. And so the point of these elaborations are really for the purpose of expounding upon the manner in which Timothy was to suffer for the gospel in order that the gospel may pass on. So first look at verse 3 through 4. It says this. Share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. As a soldier of Jesus Christ, a minister's manner of service is single-mindedness. If a soldier is distracted in mission, what happens? He gets shot. If a soldier does not follow orders of his commanding officers, 
he will be discharged with insubordination. If a soldier is doing his own thing, if he goes AWOL because he is scared, what will happen to him? He'll be imprisoned for treason. A soldier of Christ's single aim is to please the one who called him. It is single-mindedness. It is a singular focus on Christ. It says in Ruth, doesn't it? Where you go, I go. Where you live, I'll live. Where you die, I'll die. So help me God, not even death itself can come between us. Is this your resolve? Next, look at verse 5. An athlete is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. An athlete must compete according to the rules or else he or she is disqualified. They can work around the year to train, to prepare, disciplining themselves with early morning practices, disciplining themselves in a manner of diet, training, and self-control. Yet if they do not compete according to the rules, none of it matters. You can't compete. You can't win. The purpose of this illustration, of course, was to show that a Christian minister is to be disciplined, is to be diligent, is to be self-controlled. And finally, look at verse 6. It is the hard-working farmer who ought to have the first share of the crops. A hard-working farmer is another illustration of a faithful and disciplined laborer. A farmer may not see fruit resulting immediately for his labors, but he knows that a harvest is coming with hard work. Here are some quotes from Spurgeon regarding hard work to encourage, inspire, and challenge us all. Spurgeon says, Nobody gets on in the world who is half-hearted. If a man wants money, he must hunt for it morning, noon, and night. If a man longs for knowledge, he cannot take a book and ladle it into his brain with a spoon. He must read and study if he is to be a scholar. If a man desires to rise in such an age as this, he cannot do it without stern labor. Great discoverers, eminent artists, and powerful orators have all been men of hard work. Here's another by Spurgeon. Preparation for death does not mean going alone into a chamber and retiring from the world, but in active service, doing the duty of the day in the day. The best preparation for sleep, the healthiest sporific, is hard work. And one of the best things to prepare us for sleeping in Jesus is to live in him an active life of going about doing good. The attitude in which I wish death to find me is with light trimmed and loins girt, waiting and watching at work, doing my allotted task and multiplying my talent for the master's glory. It is one of the first and last qualifications of a good workman for God that he should put his heart into his work. So beloved brothers and sisters of New Covenant Baptist, how are you doing in your single-mindedness, in your discipline? and in your hard work in sharing in suffering for the gospel so that the gospel may advance. Will you join in and put your hands to the plow in the work of disciple-making at NCBC? Will you labor hard in this task with us and commit your highest priorities and prayers for this mission? I am so thankful for each of you because part of what you're doing by showing up, partnering and supporting this ministry is to ensure that a faithful gospel will continue to pass on to the next generation. Amen? In a county that needs more faithful, biblical, Baptist churches. 1 Corinthians 15, 58 says, Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, 
always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. May we be strengthened in the grace that is in Christ Jesus and be renewed daily by his understanding in everything in order that we can entrust the gospel to others, in order that we can share in suffering for the gospel, for his glory, and for the advancement of his gospel until he returns. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for this reminder to share in the suffering for the gospel. Father, in this young church, I pray that you would call on men and women who would prioritize this task, who would commit to the task of becoming a disciple who are able to disciple others also. Father, you say in your word, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Father, what a joy it has been for the past four years to labor together to establish a gospel-preaching healthy church, uh, even in the midst of difficulties and difficult seasons of life through suffering and sorrows. Father, we stand before you today and confess that we are weak. We don't know what we're doing sometimes. But Father, by your grace that is in Jesus Christ, we can stand firm and confidently and we can hope that your power by the grace of God is sufficient enough for us. Father, we don't look to the patterns of this world, of all the fanciful things of this world. Father, we look to the ordinary means of grace, your word, your promise, your church. Father, we can lean on you and trust in you to fulfill the work that you have called us to do. We are so thankful to be your church, to be your people. Continue to work among us so that many will know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. It is in his name we pray. Amen.